4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000. Agricultural. 250. Industrial revolution. Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene. I'm Michael Osborne. Today, I am at the dog park. Oh, hello. Do you want to say hello? It's nice to meet you, too. Hey there. Hello. What kind of dog? She is a red tick coonhound. Red tick coonhound. Is she bay? No, she, she doesn't. But she talks. She'll go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Every other coonhound we have is a bear. Yeah. Yeah, but, but she comes up to us and goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. Had a coonhound do that, <laughs> so I guess you know. <laughs> uh, she's good I looking. I bay, but it's, it's kind of fun having a dog that talks to you. Yeah, and it's nice to carry on a conversation. All right, probably see around at least like 15, maybe 20 dogs, all different shapes and sizes. Here's a little puppy over there. A lot of these look like mixed breeds. There is a golden retriever over there. There's one of those labradoodles. That looks like a German pointer. It may be a Dalmatian. I don't know my little dog breeds, but I believe that's a Shih Tzu. Oh, there's a little French Bulldog. I love dogs. So yeah, the reason I came to this dog park today is that there is no animal on Earth that better exemplifies all the ways in which humans can exert evolutionary pressure. Every single dog breed and all the mixed breeds are the results of human selection. We have chosen for certain traits throughout the dog's evolutionary history ever since we domesticated the gray wolf way back when. And actually, that's one way to think about the Anthropocene. It's a grand story of humans exerting more and more evolutionary pressure. We bend, manipulate, tinker, synthesize all these different forms of life. And that's just the stuff we do intentionally. On the unintentional side, we wreak havoc. We are driving extinctions and possibly even the sixth mass extinction. And our ability to drive organisms to extinction has now gone so far that we are even flirting with the idea of de-extinction, bringing organisms back from extinction. And in a way, that brings us to today's guest. I'm Beth Shapiro. I'm a professor of ecology and evolution at UC Santa Cruz, and I work on studying things that used to be alive. My research is really focused on trying to understand what makes populations and communities and ecosystems more resilient in the face of rapid climate change. But when people talk to me about my work, they mostly want to know how soon we're going to bring mammoths back to life. Beth wrote a book a few years ago called How to Clone a Mammoth. How to Clone a Mammoth, which got me thinking about how we might use these same technologies that we would use to bring species back to life to protect species that are still alive. And that was the impetus for writing the new book, Life as We Made It. Beth has gotten a lot of attention for this topic of de-extinction, but really 
Her new book is more nuanced than that. It's not just about bringing organisms back to life, but it is about using the new tools of genetic engineering and synthetic biology, perhaps as a tool for conservation. I find a lot of your book fascinating, uh, and it made me squirm in places <laughs> for reasons that I am still sorting out. Um, so, you know, I kind of just want to talk it out. Um, and I actually wanted to pull one thing from your previous book. There is a part, I think it's the final chapter, where it's like, should we do de-extinction? And you kind of go through some reasons why we might. One of them is the playing God thing. And in that little section, you reference... Stuart Brand, who in 1967, 68, whatever it was, publishes the Whole Earth Catalog, which famously says, we are as gods and might as well get good at it. What does that quote mean to you? I think it means that different from any other living organism that has lived on this planet, we have the power to think about how we are going to manipulate the evolutionary trajectory of other things and then to make that happen. Other species obviously interact with each other and cause their evolutionary trajectories to shift or change or adapt to that interaction, but we do it with purpose. Right. And I think we're really the only species that has ever been able to do this with purpose, which is why we often think about the ethics and morality of it. Like if, if we're actually intending to do something and planning it and have a choice about whether to do it or not, then we're in a different place. We're we're different from other species in exactly that way. Now, this to me is also a fundamental tension of the Anthropocene. We humans are a product of evolution and clearly we are different in some ways, but just how different and just how much power we can and should exert, that question, in a nutshell, is something that cuts across Beth's new book. The big story, the story of humans on Earth, begins with how our species spread around the globe during the Pleistocene. And one of the long-running debates in this story is just how responsible we as a species are and were for killing off big organisms, the megafauna as we spread across the new continents. The tough part about this is that the first appearance of humans in a lot of places coincided with a lot of really big climate changes. So it's clear that there is a combination of factors that are happening to drive these species extinct. In some places, like in Australia, where the first extinctions happen, there's no coincidence between the extinctions and climate. There is a coincidence between the extinctions and the first appearance of humans. And then later on islands, again, no coincidence between extinctions and climate change, but yes coincidence between extinctions and humans. So in these places, it's clear that humans are the driving force that arrive and eat everything, right? Or, or change yeah. the landscape so much that nobody else has a place to live or they can't find any food. Uh, it isn't always just uh, us killing things to eat them. Sometimes it's just the other stuff that we do come in and set fires to things and stuff like that, right. um, or our ancestors did anyway. Really, the question I'm interested in is, is it important for people to understand that? I don't think it's hard for people to believe it, but I guess it gets back to the questions we were starting to talk about at the top of the conversation in terms of intentionality, in terms of humans as a, a grand story of exerting evolutionary pressure. This is a fascinating question, and, and I often circle around this because, you know, I think that we were driving things extinct at that point. Our ancestors were clearly doing this, but were they doing it intentionally? And I think the answer there is no, that the intentionality comes in later. Our ancestors realized that 
they don't like when the stuff that they want to eat goes extinct. And we start to develop new technologies to avoid that fate. We start yeah. um, understanding how other species are breeding, how they interact with each other, how their populations grow and shrink and begin to finesse the way that we hunt so that we can allow these populations to persist. This is where we begin to become intentional in our actions. But your question, is it important for people to understand that humans are driving things extinct? I still think the answer to that is yes. Even if we weren't doing it intentionally, there are lots of things that we're not doing today with intentionality that are causing things to go extinct. But now we have the capacity to understand that this is what we're doing and to make changes to our behavior that might avoid this same fate. So, all right, let's talk about intentional manipulation of evolutionary trajectories. When you close your eyes and picture the process by which dogs became domesticated, what do you picture? Well, this is actually really different. The dog domestication is a type of event that kind of happened at least initially by chance. Um, yeah. You know, gray wolves were nearby human settlements and they started to realize that they were a good source of food predictable source of food. And they started to den nearby. And then humans were able to be alerted to maybe other predators that were coming by because it would stir the wolves and they would howl and make a lot of ruckus. This is all hypothetical, right? This is how people are imagining this domestication took place. We don't actually know the answer, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and eventually this sort of symbiotic relationship, this commensal relationship evolved into something else where dogs came to rely on people as they do today. And, you know, we turned them into lots of different things, anything from hunting dogs to dogs that can help us if we need help to little tiny things that we carry around in our purses and, you know, yip a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's where my, I mean, I was thinking everything from a chihuahua to a Great Dane to everything in between, right. to, you know, herding dogs. <laughs> Unintentional, probably at first, right? They're probably kind of scavengers. They're probably kind of hanging around. And then we discover some mutual benefit and, and hanging out together. Yeah. So the, the initial domestication of dogs was unintentional, but the dog breeds that we have today are all intentional. Totally. Right? Is yeah. that how most domestication works, whether it's with animals or with plants? I think the earliest domestications worked that way. Um, this is not my absolute expert area of work. The domestication and agriculture part of this I'm fascinated by, and I have yeah. collaborated with people who've worked on it, but it's not my 100% area here. But I do think that some of these original events, like the like dogs, I think chickens and pigs, these are hypothetically also started off as commensal domestications, where at least initially it was just a symbiotic relationship between the species and us because we provided food and resources and they gave us something in exchange. Later on, though, we started doing things more intentionally. So cattle domestication, this was much more intentional than dogs and probably some of the first plants um, because um, our ancestors were hunting aurochs and realizing that the populations were dwindling. So they started practicing hunting strategies in which they were taking only non-reproductive females or just juvenile males as a way of making sure that the individuals who were going to reproduce would stay alive and therefore reproduce. 
produce. And then they started bringing them closer to the human settlements because it was easier to keep track of these things if they were nearby. And then they really started picking which individuals were going to be able to breed into the next generation. Real herding, real sort of domestication kind of things. If an animal shied away from humans or spooked when they were nearby, they probably ate that one, right? They didn't let that one go into the next generation. If something ran away, that was something that wouldn't go into the next generation. And this was the beginning of real intentional domestication by um, what Mindy Zeter often calls the second pathway of domestication. Okay. I mean, let me tell you where this is coming from, Beth. When I read your book, and the first half of it really, I think, is a grand story of human exerting all kinds of evolutionary pressures in ways that are maybe not always appreciated, we've been, maybe been kind of sort of playing God for a very, very long time. What's the story where we don't play God? Um, yeah. I, I don't know if those two stories are, that are in total opposition, but I guess I was trying to figure out, like, who is Beth speaking to in the first half of this book and telling this story of, we've been doing this a long time. We've been making life as we, yeah. life as we made it is the name of the book yeah. for a long time. You know, I, I think this juxtaposition is clearest when we start thinking about conservation. And this is probably where you're, where you're coming from here. I mean, we often think of conservation in its purest form as us leaving stuff alone and letting them just get on with it. Like this yeah. is us not being gods. We are going to deliberately back up so that everything has the best chance of whatever to survive. But that is not at all what conservation is. And the way that I see conservation is it's the extension of our deliberate intervention from our domesticated species to everything else, right? So now, you know, conservation of Florida panthers doesn't mean leave them alone. It means figure out which individuals get reproduced, figure out how to introduce individuals from Texas into the Florida population and how often to do this, because stuff is messed up to such an extent that we just can't leave things alone. Um, I mean, think about conservation of things in national parks, right? Where this is a place where we've just left things alone, except we haven't. We put fences around them to make sure that nothing gets in there. We vaccinate the animals to make sure that they don't get sick. This is not leaving things alone. This is us intentionally determining everything about the future of these species. Uh, bison herds, for example, there are conservation herds and there are farming herds. There are herds, herds of beefalo and bison that we can sell for food, right? And we imagine that these two things are treated entirely differently but they're not. We still manage the sex ratios. We manage how many individuals are there. We figure out who gets to survive and reproduce. We're not leaving one alone and playing God for the other. We are as gods for both of these, as we are for everything that we're trying to manage in the world right now. I totally agree. And this is exactly where I was going. I still think that there's a real discomfort. There's an unease about it. Maybe so, but this is, I think, where I just agree with Stuart. We just got to get over ourselves and recognize that we have put ourselves in this position. There are so many people on the planet that if we really want to live in a biodiverse world with 10 billion people, and I'm not sure we want 10 billion people, but that's where we're headed, right? If we really want that, we have to accept that leaving stuff alone is flight of fancy. Like, we can't do this. We have to intervene. We're already intervening. If we embrace that, maybe we can be a little bit more comfortable with intervening even more, which I argue that we have to do if we're going to be able to live and eat and breathe clean air and have clean water. And we're headed in this direction. We are as gods. Let's get good at it. <laughs> I'm not like 
uh, in any way categorically opposed to that, but, I, but I'm still in a state of conflict with it. I agree. We have a power that we have to reckon with, and this whole let's not touch it attitude is actually irresponsible. However, what is lost for it, for me, is humility, because I think that humility may be a fundamental part of the ideal environmental relationship that we have, that there yeah. is there is something to be said for going out, connecting with nature, observing nature as a passive participant and saying, look at the wonder, and, and that there is something somewhat sacred for people about that experience. I completely agree that it's kind of indulging in a fantasy that maybe was never, ever true. I don't know, though. Is it indulging? I mean, th- look at the the work that Emma Maris has done, where she she has a book called Rambunctious Garden and, and, a, and a more recent book whose, whose name I can't remember right now. But I mean, she encourages us to embrace the fact that we live in this disrupted world and to still marvel at the wonder of nature. And I 100% agree with this. We can both marvel at the wildness of stuff that is out there while recognizing that it is only kind of wildish at this point. Point, right? Oh, it can still be beautiful. The ecosystems can still be rich and diverse and something that we can go and embrace as if they're outside. And, and yes, and, and be humble. And I 100% agree with you. Like I am not advocating for charging out there and genetically engineering absolutely everything. I think we need to engage with what communities are. We need to embrace the international nature of who we are as people as well and make sure that we have complete community engagement. This is a global thing we're talking about doing, not an individual decision. And if we don't have some sort of humility, we're going to go down a path that no one wants to go down. But yeah, but it's, it's hard. What's your answer? Come on. I I, I don't know. I don't have an answer. That's, that's, that's the whole point. I am in a state of conflict about this, that I believe humility is an essential vital quality that I want to hang on to. I also believe we are as gods and I don't know how gods are humble. But maybe we should be as humble gods. <laughs> that may be the title of this episode. All right. <laughs> All right. I uh, can't help but ask a couple questions about de-extinction. Um, I'm sorry. I'm at the woolly mammoth I'm just going to sigh audibly yeah. from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> Let me ask it this way, because I got, you know, I got a reasonable, I'd say, you know, 40% handle on on where we're at with bringing a woolly mammoth back, hypothetically. I, here's the question I want to ask you. Let's picture someday, some years in the future, you take a flight from San Jose to St. Petersburg, and then you take a train to Siberia, and you get off that train, and there is a red carpet waiting for you. You roll out, you walk down the red carpet, and through the gates of a giant park that's Pleistocene Park, and you see three woolly mammoths. Yeah. What does it feel like to be standing there looking at those woolly mammoths? Well, first, I think it'd be a little bit embarrassing. I'd have to eat my words. (laughs) (laughs) And then I would wonder if they also somehow managed to keep um, Sergei Zimov alive because he's the Sergei Zimov and his son Nikita have been running Pleistocene Park for a long time. And I know that there's not going to be three adult mammoths, at least for you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And Sergey, I think, is in his late 60s. There's a lot of assumptions built into this okay. question, Beth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think, yeah, awe. I mean, it's a, it, it would be an absolutely incredible thing to see something like this. And, you know, I, I argue that we're not going to see something that is 100% mammoth for lots of different reasons that we can get into if you want to, but you probably don't. No. Um, yeah. but- and, and let's say 60% mammoth and 40% Asian elephant or something. Yeah. Awe is the is the feeling you would have? Yeah, maybe a little bit nervousness. I mean, I I think I'd 
I don't know. This that's a really interesting question. You know, there's um recently there's been this uh, for-profit company that's launched called Colossal that wants to to actually develop the technology to bring a woolly mammoth back to life. And they're here in Austin, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yeah. yes, in Austin and Boston and uh, maybe some other places too. And you know, th- this was received by the public with a mixture of deep offense and incredible excitement, which I understand completely both sides of. My own idea about it is way more verging on excitement, but not because I think they're going to succeed in bringing a mammoth back to life, but because I'm really excited about the idea that there's been investment from a new source, you know, these biotech people really going to put money into developing new tools for biodiversity conservation. And anything that they learn in the process of bringing a mammoth back to life is going to have application outside of that and will definitely enhance and enrich our abilities to use synthetic biology and other modern biotechnology approaches to protect species and ecosystems that are alive today. You know, I, I think this is really exciting stuff. Yeah. One way that my brain's been going recently, though, because I've always been so kind of like, eh, I don't know if we really need de-extinction. This is kind of a silly thing. There might actually be some situations in which bringing an extinct species back to life would be actually really good for biodiversity conservation. And I think these would be situations where something is recently extinct. And so the, the ecosystem that they were living in is still in that state of flux. Like, but we're not really sure what's going to happen. Other things might become extinct. Everything's going to have to change. And there might be some cascading, really terrible consequences here. I'm not sure that's where we are with mammoths. When we talk about bringing back a mammoth, and I'm being a bit circular here, mm. we talk about not resurrecting mammoths, but mammoth traits. So creating Asian elephants that are better adapted to living in cold places. So we've brought back these traits, cold adapted traits in mammoths from mammoths that evolved in mammoths, and we've stuck them into Asian elephants, creating Asian elephants that are better adapted to living in a place that there aren't elephants right now, but where elephants might live. So you could think of the exact same project as a way of expanding habitat available to elephants, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than bringing mammoths back to life. What if we think of species as traits of an ecosystem where the ecosystem is the whole organism and parts of it are in trouble, but other parts aren't. But if you bring back this species, you're reinvigorating this, you're restabilizing this ecosystem that otherwise would really go into some spiral, potentially leading to lots of other extinction. And I I haven't really fully thought through this, but you know, a a, a podcast that's going to be broadcast to other people is a great place to talk about something (laughs) that you haven't thought through. So here we are. Um, What do you think of it? What do you think about this idea? Yeah, I thought this was one of the take-homes for me of your book. I love this idea. I mean, I the, the idea that, all right, you might look at one ecosystem and say there's a somewhat rare species that's about to go extinct, and if it does, there's very good likelihood there's going to be cascading effects. What if we save some of that organism and borrow from a cousin a few hundred miles away or something and come up with a new organism and then plug it into that ecosystem so that the whole set of interactions is is a little bit more, quote-unquote, in balance, and, yeah. and we kind of preserve something there. It actually was like, because I find, frankly, like, are we going to bring back the mammoth? What about dinosaurs? I find that conversation a little bit clickbaity. Yeah, I think you were even starting to speak to it a second ago, that there is a sort of Apollo moonshot-like quality, whether we bring back the mammoth or not. 100%, 60%, part Asian elephant, whatever we do, we're going to learn things along the way that yeah. 
may offer us really valuable tools for conservation. I think that's where you were going with this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, there's so much that we could do, but we don't know how to do. Imagine what we don't know about the Asian elephant genome or what we don't know about the coral genome or of the spruce tree genome or all of these other things where we might be able to identify solutions to whatever crises these populations are undergoing. Here's a, a great example, which is the black-footed ferret. This is a, an adorable little predator that lives across the plains of North America that is deeply endangered. It was on the original endangered species list. It was thought to have gone extinct twice. The first time they started a captive breeding program, it failed. They couldn't figure out how to make these things breed in captivity. They thought the species was extinct. And then somebody found a black-footed ferret near Matitsi, Wyoming. And this population became the source of this next captive breeding population. And they knew a little bit more at that time. And black-footed ferrets are really important in their ecosystem because they're the top predator. They're actually keeping down the population of prairie dogs because they eat prairie dogs. And yeah. prairie dogs are super destructive. They dig everything up and cause lots of holes and ruin infrastructure across the plains, yeah. et cetera. So you want the, the predator, but there's a problem. And that is, although black-footed ferrets can make lots of black-footed ferrets in captive breeding, as soon as you release them into their habitat, they get sylvatic plague because prairie dogs are carrying plague and they die. There, there are ways to vaccinate them, but vaccinating an entire population in the wild and then revaccinating them is not sustainable. Right. So how might new tools of biotechnology be able to help the black-footed ferret? There's two ways, in fact. First is there's a place in San Diego called the San Diego Frozen Zoo where scientists have been collecting tissue samples of things that are endangered or now extinct for decades. And in this facility, they actually had frozen tissue samples from black-footed ferrets that were alive prior to the first one of their imagined extinctions. So the black-footed ferret tissue samples in the frozen zoo have a different genetic background than all the black-footed ferrets that are currently in the captive breeding facility. And a few months ago, one of these, you know, decades-old tissue samples was used to successfully clone a black-footed ferret. A little black-footed ferret called Elizabeth Ann was born. You should check her out. She's adorable. The pictures of her online are fantastic. This is a project led by Revive and Restore, which is a nonprofit focused on using the new tools of biotechnology for conservation. Check them out. Cool work. I'm on the board of directors, so nice there you plug. Go. Yeah, yeah, you got it in. We're good. <laughs> They're really cool. But this yeah. this project was led by them, as is the other project. Um, so Elizabeth Ann was born, and she will be the eighth individual, the eighth founder of this population that they can actually use to inject more genetic diversity into this population that's being put back out into the wild. So will this impact their ability to resist plague? We don't know, but it certainly does inject genetic diversity, which is great for them. There's way less inbreeding with one more individual. But there's another potential solution that now does involve more tools of synthetic biology, and that is that the cousin of black-footed ferrets, the domestic ferret, evolved alongside plague and is natively immune. They don't get plague even when they're exposed to it. So Revive and Restore, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, and some academic partners are working to try to figure out what it is in the genome of the domestic ferret that makes them immune to plague with the goal, ultimately, of using gene editing to transfer that genetic immunity to plague from domestic ferrets into black-footed ferrets, creating a new organism, a black-footed ferret that is a little bit domestic ferret, right, that yeah. is capable of surviving in the wild. I mean, you hear that example and you can't help but think that these tools that we are developing 
really might have important uh, applications in the world of conservation biology, especially as we try and handle this global environmental crisis, right? I, I think I want to return in these last few minutes to the central question of, that we've been talking about, this sort of intentionality, you know, playing God, humble gods. Is there such a thing? I think what I'm grappling with, and I think what I want my listeners to grapple with, is, is what the underlying philosophical principles are here. Why care about nature? Why conserve it? There are utilitarian reasons. There are ecosystem services. There are also aesthetic reasons. Some things are pretty and beautiful. In fact, that's how you end your book, uh, mm. is by saying that the world is beautiful, kind of no matter what we do, and that we ought to care about this for whatever reasons. But I, I am still in a state of conflict about how to hold on to that uh, quality of humility while still owning our power and and looking for some guiding principles about what it means to engineer or manipulate the environment intentionally. Because I, I do worry that something, for want of a better term, sacred is lost in that process. Yeah, it's a difficult thing to grapple with and to really understand how far we should go. You think about it and you think, who are we to decide that we're going to move genes between species so that we can maybe protect one species? But who are we to have this technology at our fingertips and allow everything to go extinct when we have the means to save them? These are difficult questions. Well, I guess I'm wondering where you come down on this. I, I'm wondering if after writing this book, you feel some sense of resolution around those big, difficult questions, or if this is something you're grappling with? I say it's something that I'm still grappling with, and I, I think there are a lot of challenges that are out there. I, I also think it's not my decision. I think that this is a, a real global decision, and you know, Western scientists making this decision is also not the right answer. This is something that will impact us everywhere all of humanity and all of the species around us, and we need to work together to come to a solution that we're comfortable with. My personal opinion is that these technologies are good and that we need to learn how to use them and that avoiding using them because we're afraid of them is incredibly risky. And what we're risking there is the loss of biodiversity that is around us right now. Yes, the technologies are risky. Yes, they're scary. Yes, they put us in a position where we haven't been before really as people. I mean, we have been driving the evolution of things for a very long time, but this is different. Moving genes in a way that they wouldn't naturally do in any way is different. And saying that it isn't, isn't helpful either, right? Yeah. So when we sit down and make this decision, we have to evaluate all the risks, but we also have to remember that there is a risk of doing nothing. And that is something that we also need to consider. That sounded like godlike humility to me. Um, <laughs> um, I, and maybe this is the last question. I, I guess is your big fear that we're going to make some seemingly principled decision to outlaw or stigmatize uh, these technologies because of some sort of discomfort with our own power. I mean, it does sound like that is something that, that you don't want to see happen. Yeah. I mean, we've seen what's happened with, you know, this exact same technology, but for agriculture, where we have this small group of vocal extremists who are deliberately spreading misinformation to the extent that people have become so uncomfortable with the idea of genetically modified foods, even if these are foodstuffs that could have been produced in nature, but we found this really quick path to doing it that doesn't have all sorts of other unintended consequences. People are so scared of this that now you have these little labels that say not 
non-GMO on things like salt, which doesn't even have DNA and can't be modified. But the, the environment is so charged. It's not helpful. I totally understand that people are afraid of things that they don't understand. And that is reasonable. It's rational and it's the correct response, right? But deliberately obfuscating people's ability to understand what's going on is the wrong path forward. And that's really what's happened with gene editing and for agriculture. And I don't want to see that happen in conservation. And I hope that we can see progress in conservation that can actually feed back into agriculture. People deserve to understand what it is they're eating. People deserve to understand what it is that we're doing. Let's make it possible for people to know, for people to understand. And that was really one of my goals in writing the book. I think you did it. I mean, I, you know, look, I, I'm, I'm a smidge more comfortable with, uh, genetically modified organisms and synthetic <laughs> biology having read Woot, your book. So, yeah, yeah, you won number one, <laughs> at least one podcast. Um, all right, Beth, congratulations so much on the book and thank you for taking time for this conversation. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks so much again to Beth Shapiro for that conversation. Her new book is called Life As We Made It. Thanks to Brandon Burke for production assistance, and thank you to Lydia Fortuna for producing this episode. And of course, thank you for listening.